0: 1 Samuel 17. We are taking a break from our God designed marriage series to focus on our theme for this year. You guys remember the theme? Oh, huh? Yes, trust more, fear less. Fear less trust more right let your faith be bigger than your fear so that is uh kind of the theme for the year 2022 um, every now and then throughout the year we're gonna we've been revisiting this theme this is our third message on it uh, and uh, today's message is one that uh, I think the lord has been putting on my heart for several months now and uh, I wish I had more time to work on it to be honest with you but I uh, here we go and I'm excited to share this message with you guys. To be honest, every single message I deliver up here, it's like I didn't have enough time and I always wish I had more time to work on it. And then at the end I always say, "Oh, I should I said something I wish I wouldn't have." And then I feel rejected and then I have to come to John Labar's class and he fixes me. So so yeah, if you like today's message, great. It's, it's pretty unique, so don't expect it every week, and um, if you don't like it, don't tell me, because I'll feel rejected, and then John will have to fix me again. So, now, Several years ago, I was part of a mission team where we each took one of those uh, strengths finder tests, you know, to, to help us understand Our team better, who the individuals were on our team, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were. And to be honest, I don't remember much of the results from this test that I took, which felt like it took an hour to complete it. But um, there was one thing that I do remember, and it was that it confirmed I was more of a historian than a visionary. I operate more by looking at the past than I do by looking towards the future, which was kind of weird because I was supposed to be a team leader, and they're like, You're not a visionary? And I was like, Well, Shouldn't a a visionary be a good historian in order to be a good visionary? Does that make sense? Right? So I think a a visionary should be a good historian in order to make good decisions moving forward. Without history, we're going to struggle to understand the present, and we're going to make ill-informed decisions. The past really is the key to the present. Um, We can see how the writers of the Old Testament, I think they understood that by the way that they talked about the works of God, or the mighty acts of God, the mighty deeds of God, maybe your translation says. Well, these these works of God are usually referencing uh, two things. Number one, God's uh, work of creating and sustaining the world, and uh, also God's work of redemption, and deliverance, kind of like how God delivered Israel in the past. They would talk about the work of God redeeming them from slavery out of Egypt and through the Red Sea miracle, the works of God His miracles, that sort of thing. They understood that God uh, had a faithful past track record. And because of that, because of God's track record, they could then Trust Him and praise Him now. So they understood the past, and it was the key to the present, trusting Him now, because He has shown Himself to be faithful in the past. And we sang about that in our first song. Uh, Even though God's program might vary as it progresses, kind of like we move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant or the apostolic period into what we're living in today, uh, He's still the same God, isn't He? Ah, The program can change a little bit, but He's still the same God. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That God who parted the Red Sea is still just as fully capable of parting a sea today, right? He's the same God. He's not changed. He hasn't lost His power. He's the same faithful, all-powerful, living God who is very present with us. So, uh, I think... This is why my interest in archaeology has grown over the years in my study of the Bible, and one of my dreams has become to take part in an actual dig in Israel. I don't know what it is, but I just can't get enough of this stuff. Uh, Because the past is the key to the present. Archaeology digs up the past in a good way. Sometimes you want to leave the past alone, right? Well, archaeology digs up the past in a good way, and it shows us, as we're going to see today, that we can trust the Word of God, and therefore, the God of the Word who wrote it. One of my favorite parts of studying the Bible every week to to feed the flock here is is digging into the historical, cultural, uh, geographical Right, especially in the book of Acts, that's been a real treat, just looking at the geography and where Paul went and this and that. And then also the, the archaeological evidence that, that support or coincide with the passage that we're going to study that week. I mean, without those, the historical, cultural, archaeological stuff, it seems like the application is just going to fall flat. Those things are what illuminate the passages for us. And they, they, they help us interpret the passage more accurately, more profoundly, and then it puts some convictional punch into the application, like, whoa, look at all the support for the Scripture here. Look at, uh, look at these things. It's like, this is serious stuff. This is true. And if this is true, well, boy, I better apply this to my life. Right? Isn't that the way it works? If, if I believe the Bible is God's Word, I'm more likely to take it seriously, aren't I? And to, to change, let it change my life. If I don't trust the Bible, I might still treat it like a unique book, but not necessarily something to give my life for. Studying it, preaching it, Teaching it, applying it, letting it shape my entire worldview, even when it comes to politics. Do we take it seriously enough to let it change us, transform us, and impact our worldview and everything about us? And uh, Recently, I've come across some fun and interesting archaeological digs and discussions involving uh, David and Goliath. David and Goliath. What do you think of when you think of David and Goliath? A lot of people think of a tall tale, right? Some Bible story, fictional story. But uh, we're going to look at this this account. I would rather call it that than a story, uh, because it matches our theme for this year of trusting God and fearing less. And who doesn't love this biblical account? Who doesn't love it? You guys love it. I know you do. And uh, I trust most of you got the message, uh, the email, or on Facebook to read through 1 Samuel 17 this week. Did you guys catch that? Because it's going to really help you uh, with today's message. It's such a long chapter. It's like 58 verses, so we don't have time to go through all of it. But if you read through it, it's really going to help you out. Um, But even if you didn't read through it, you're probably familiar enough with this thrilling story that uh, you'll be fine. So <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a thrilling story about a young, humble shepherd boy with a sling who defeats this arrogant, uh, war-hardened giant named Goliath, who's equipped with the biggest and baddest weapons around. And while the, the Israelite army is just reeling with fear at Goliath, actually David says their hearts are failing them, Um, David actually runs at this giant without armor and with a sling and a stone and with one lethal shot, sinks a stone right into his forehead and topples him. And then he takes the giant's saber and cuts off his head with it, (laughs) just like he said he was gonna, um, it's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome story. Pretty descriptive, too. Um, It reminds me of a story one man recently told me at a men's retreat. I did this men's retreat back in March, I think it was. And uh, one of the guys there were sitting around the lunch table eating. And uh, he was telling stories. They were all talking about golf. And uh, he's talking about how he was golfing up in the Black Hills, and his golf ball smoked a marmot, you know, one of those groundhog critters. I mean, just nailed it right between the eyes and it knocked it dead as as a doornail. And uh, I just about died laughing at this because 30 minutes later, guess what I was going to preach on? David and Goliath. This guy had no idea and I thought, man, this is going to make the perfect illustration, a marmot getting hit in the head with a golf ball. So anyway... While you might be suspicious of my friend hitting a marmot with a golf ball between the eyes, uh, many throughout the centuries have been suspicious of the account of David and Goliath as well. They think it's just a tall tale. And so I'm going to give us the scoop, some of the archaeological evidence on some of this, uh, artifacts related to David and Goliath, that would suggest this is not a tall tale after all. It really did happen. Um, And we're going to... Uh, Look at this evidence that's going to increase our trust in the Word of God, and then we're going to pull out the main teaching in the narrative that emphasizes trusting in God. So let's look at the first um, evidence that we have for today. And this is called the David Stella. The David Stella, I think you can say Steely too. Steely or Stella. Uh, In archaeological terms, a Stella is a monument stone or a wooden slab that would have been erected for commemorative purposes, usually inscribed with writing and decoration, but occasionally uh, it would be painted. And in 1993, at an excavation at Dan, the city of Dan, tell Dan, one such stella was found dating back to the 9th century B.C., and this is shortly after David lived. Okay, and the stella was likely, I don't know, about three feet tall, and it would have been placed at the entrance of the city of Dan. And on this uh, is written, house of David. And that phrase, house of, would, would have, was a common designation for a royal family or a dynasty. And it signified or uh, indicated kingship. Kind of like 2 Samuel says, there was a long war between the house of Saul, who was king, and the house of David, who was God's true king. So at that time, anyway, Saul was being replaced. And so King David is mentioned on this stella that they found from the 9th century B.C., along with some other kings found in the Book of Kings, and that's important. So for many years, skeptics claimed that King David was just fictitious due to the lack of archaeological evidence for him. They actually hadn't found any evidence for King David. And so everybody thought he was just made up. He's just he's just as fictional as King Arthur. He never really was a king. Well, since David is a major Old Testament personality who wrote 75 psalms in our Bible and one of the few men that God promised the Messianic lineage to, that the Christ would come through his lineage, that makes this an extremely important discovery, doesn't it? Yeah, so um, since this tell Dan Stella, other artifacts like a 9th century Mesha Stella was found to reference the house of David as well. we found more since then, but uh, this was a big one. So the skeptics have finally had to admit, well, David was a real king. He really did exist. The second uh, evidence I have for us is the Goliath ostracon, and an ostracon is just a piece of pottery that might have some sort of inscription or painting. Uh, inscribed into it, cut cut into it, and they'd use usually some sort of black carbon ink, uh, which we use the same stuff today, basically, made from soot. But uh, one relevant ostracon discovery was found in the ancient city of Gath. Where was Goliath from? Gath, right? Goliath's hometown. It dated back, this piece of pottery dated back to the 10th or 9th century, same time period as when Goliath and David lived. And and this ostracon is interesting because it contains two names on it, and the first name is the etymological equivalent of Goliath, proving Goliath was a common Philistine name in Gath during the united monarchy of Israel, the time when Saul and David and Solomon reigned, when all of Israel was united. So that's evidence number two. We see Goliath as a common name in Philistia, in Gath. So, and then here's where it starts to get really fun. The third evidence is sling stones at Shiloh. In a current, There is a, a current archaeological dig going on right now that I, that I try to stay current with. Uh, there are updates on the Shiloh Network News. Now, um, Shiloh, by the way, is the, the place where the tabernacle once stood, and they found an ancient sling stone there, like you see in the picture. You see the size of that thing? Right? It's bigger than a golf ball. Uh, this thing, though, is, is nothing new or rare, and um, so that's not what makes it a significant find, is that it's, it's not rare, it's not new. The significance comes from the fact that many such sling stones have been found throughout all of Israel, affirming for us that slinging... Like David did with Goliath was a very common thing in Israel's history. It was common. So I remember when I was a kid, I spent a whole summer with my beloved you know hunter's orange slingshot. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble with that thing too. I remember shooting out like old car windows with it. and, and anyway, I thought that slingshot there was just the coolest thing in the world. I thought it was cooler than my bb gun to be honest with you and uh, i always think of this slingshot for some reason when i read about david and goliath however david's sling shot i guess was very different and his stones would have been a lot larger than the little small marbles and rocks that i used to use in biblical times slinging was uh for sport uh for shepherding so they'd use it for sport, you know, kind of competition, for shepherding, protecting the, like David did, protecting the flock from wolves or bears, and uh, they would use it for self-defense. Somebody comes and raids your house, guess what? Here's my sling, right? So, and then they use, also use it for warfare, and even though slings were a much cheaper and humbler type of weapon than a sword or a spear made of metal or bronze, they were still a formidable lethal weapon. Uh, they were also a common weapon because, I mean, everybody can purchase one of these or make one of these. You could wear it around your waist as a belt. You could wear it as a headband. It was just a normal, everyday thing to carry with you. Like a shepherd, he might wear it around his belt. He sees a wolf, guess what? Or he's just bored out there in the pastures. guess what? He's going to play with his sling, get good at it like David did. So um, every major military, like the Greeks, like the Carthaginians, which we don't hear a lot about, unfortunately, uh, and then the Romans, they all would have had slinger units in their armies. It's an awesome thing. So um, in the movies, the highlight is always on the archers because, you know, they're launching these arrows and stuff. Well, actually, the slingers were the mercenaries. These guys were the marines. They would attack first. They could outrange the archers and, and do a lot of damage. Uh, Hannibal, he was the great general of Carthage in the Punic Wars. He was very successful against Rome using slingers. Uh, he would actually have some slingers act. They were like guerrilla snipers, and they'd hide in the bushes from the side and come from the side, and they would take out the army that way. While someone else, while well, the most of the army was going head to head with them, slingers would come around the side and take them out. But uh, he's the guy, by the way, who 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 rode elephants over the Swiss Alps or went over the Alps going after Rome all the way through Spain and around. He, it was pretty neat, historical stuff. But instead of a catapult-style slingshot like mine, like my orange slingshot, David would have used a flexible linen or leather strap that had a pocket fit for a stone. And um, in the pictures there, you can see a sling found in Egypt dating back to 800 B.C. That's the top. Picture And then King Tut, they actually found King Tut's sling in his tomb, and that's the the bottom picture there. And then uh, in the the other picture, you can see a demonstrator in 2012 using a sling in the West Bank of Israel. So uh, as you can see, though, the slingers, they would take these things, they would swing the stones either above their heads or at their side, or they might do a figure eight. Type of thing, and then they would release. So they'd have a, a, a ring on the end of one side of the sling that goes on their finger. Maybe this, it doesn't matter. They, they use different fingers. But, and then they would pinch the other end. There was a knot, and they just let go of that knot and fling the stone at the right time. So Anyway, a modest person could launch a, one of these stones over 100 miles an hour. Can you imagine a ball like that coming at you 100 miles an hour? That could decapitate you. Right? <laughs> um, for ammo, First 1 Samuel 1740, says David used stones from the brook of Elah. He went down and got some smooth stones, five of them, uh, that had been smoothed by the waters. Comparatively, armies would actually do the same thing. They would stockpile river stones rather than uh, wasting a bunch of time and energy trying to make perfectly round balls. They would just go down to the river and grab a bunch of stones. Uh, so. Pretty common thing to get a stone out of the river brook, just like David did. Uh, in his day, it was common to use those those big, uh, massive two to three-inch stones that were made up of limestone or lead. Um, some were actually even bigger than a, a baseball. They found one at a recent dig, uh, Kirbet el Makatir, which was bigger than a baseball. I can't imagine one of those flying at me. Uh be kind of scary stuff but as time went on they moved on from the Greeks and Romans actually they moved on from these bigger uh, sling stones to these, these smaller what they called pellets or bullets they actually called them bullets this is ancient ballistics <laughs> it's pretty neat and they, they would manufacture these little things these little conical or teardrop shaped things in mass quantities and sometimes they had holes drilled into them so that when they flew by your head they would make a whistling sound. And uh, that would just intimidate, have a psychological effect on the enemy, wouldn't it you? You hear that thing come whizzing through your, through your lines, your, the enemy lines, or your battle lines. Anyway, some of them had symbols on them, uh, like a lightning bolt, and some of them had these just comical inscriptions. They would write on the bullet, ouch, or take that, or here's some fruit for dessert, or here's a sugar plum for you. So can you imagine you pulling one of these bullets out of your leg and it says, here's a sugar plum for you, right? So you got the sarcasm on it to boot. And there's actually medical records that describe uh, addressing sling stone wounds and, and actually extracting them out of a person's leg or whatever. They would break bones. and So um, depending on the size of the stone... Uh, The length of the sling, the skill of the slinger, stones could be launched 100 to 400 yards, nearly a quarter mile, with surprising accuracy. There was one Roman historian, uh, Livy, who lived in the first century, said that the Achaean or Grecian slingers could hit not merely the heads of their enemies, but any part of the face at which they were aiming. So these guys were like snipers. Uh, It reminds you of Judges 20, verse 16. It said, Among all these were 700 chosen men, David's men, or who who were, uh, no, these are the Benjamites, sorry, who were left-handed. 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's his way of saying these guys were deadly accurate. Um, So David's accuracy of a stone penetrating Goliath's forehead shouldn't be thought of as a stretch. There's a lot of historical evidence for that, these guys being this accurate. <laughs> evidence number four would be the giant weapons horde at Kephar Monash. Um, the Bible talks, this is where it gets really fun, and I never dreamed I would be in front of people talking about giants someday. But uh, the Bible talks unapologetically about giants in the land of the Bible. The most famous Goliath is described as over nine feet tall, probably around nine and a half feet tall. And if that seems a bit unrealistic, the tallest man in indisputable recorded history was Robert Waldlow in that picture, who in 1940 measured one inch shy of nine feet. So he's eight foot eleven. And so uh, you can go, there's a wax figure of this guy where he's sitting down in a chair and you stand next to him and then he stands up. And then it's like, oh man. So he makes Shaquille O'Neal, Shaquille O'Neal actually stood next to this thing, and it makes him look tiny at seven foot one or whatever Shaq measures at. Um, it's pretty neat. So uh, even though Wadlow's abnormal height, okay, his was a non hereditary form of gigantism, more like a disease, there are other people, though, who through normal human variation have or would have fit the description of a giant. The giants of the Bible, though, are spoken of as more hereditary giants, kind of like the, the Nephilim, the, the Anakim, the Amorites, Amorites, uh, uh, descendants of Noah's son Ham. So the, the stature of the sons of Anak were so impressive, remember this, that the 12 spies said, uh-uh, <laughs> right? Well, not 12, not all 12 of them, right? Uh, not Joshua and Caleb. But uh, the 10 spies said, "These guys make us feel like grasshoppers. They're so big." Uh, they, there was a hereditary form of giants. A lot of the, they were just bigger people. They were descendants of the giants, it says. And so they spent 40 years in the wilderness refusing to go up and fight these guys. Um, the chronological description of giants in the Bible indicates that as time went on, giants were becoming increasingly rare. If you just look up the references to giants, it's like as time goes on, it gets rarer and rarer. So you had like entire people groups that were giants to where it's like, here's a descendant of the giants, like Goliath or this Egyptian that uh, day one of David's men fought, Og of Bashan. He was, it actually says he was the last surviving giant of the Rephites whose bed was 13 feet long. So it just gets kind of like to be more of a remnant and then individuals and to where there's, there's pretty much no more because Joshua came into the land of Canaan, cleared them out. And that's actually what sets up this scene between Goliath and David. It's an ancient battle. And, and uh, so Goliath was a son of Anak, whom Joshua took out this entire people group. But uh, if this seems to be a tall tale still, Think of the giant creatures of the past and today who have giant counterparts within their kind. Okay, Meganura, I had so much fun studying this stuff this week. Meganura is an extinct dragonfly that had a wingspan over 30 inches. Two and a half foot dragonfly. Can you imagine? Get my slingshot, right? (laughs) I'm going after one of those. These are fossils that they found. There is... Uh, A giant spider crab today that can live up to 100 years, weigh 40 pounds, and have a claw span of over 12 feet. A 12-foot claw span. Isn't that interesting? I'd love to go into Red Lobster and get me one of them and see the aquarium they keep that thing in. So, Glypododon was a 13-foot armadillo. Glypododon was an 8-foot sea scorpion. Can you imagine a scorpion, 8-foot long? Terrifying. Megatherium was a 20-foot sloth. I got I, you can look him up. They have fossils of this thing. 20-foot tall, that makes a mammoth look tiny, doesn't it? A 20-foot sloth? I hope he moved as slow as a regular sloth today. But uh, uh, there was a, there's a, a giant earthworm in Australia today that grows over 6-foot. Upwards of nine feet, just an earthworm. Okay, these things can get huge. I hope Jacob doesn't run into any of those. Um, they make movies about that this kind of stuff, right? Uh, Archelon. This is my favorite. Go look up Archelon this afternoon uh, when you get out of here. Archelon is a sixteen foot wide, fifteen foot long, five thousand pound turtle, and you see it in that picture, right? Look at the size of that thing. That shell is bigger than your Volkswagen Beetle. And guess where it was found? This is why it's my favorite. North of town, right, 45 miles south of Rapid in the pier shell. And they found these massive sea turtles, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming. These things were huge. How come we don't hear about these things? So I think they have like a replica still up at the Black Hills, uh, that uh, museum up there in, in Hill City. But uh, just just awesome, isn't this? Isn't this stuff great? That, that fossil right there is actually, it was on display at Yale for a while, and now it's in a, in a natural history museum in Austria. But uh, it seems to me, apparent to me, that before the flood and clearly before the fall into sin that this world's climate, was a lot more, it was just more hospitable, more temperate, more temperate. And, and we see in, the, in Genesis that it allowed men to live longer. We know that, and I don't see why in some cases it wouldn't allow creatures to grow bigger. Like the climate of this world before the flood was just more temperate, more hospitable for life. I mean, before the fall, the Bible was fertile, it was soft. Uh, uh, I mean, it was just had subterranean uh, irrigation. Genesis 2 talks about that. And then after the fall, God has to tell Adam, you're going you're to you're raise crops by the sweat of your brow, you're going to fight weeds, you're going to fight thorns. And so, I mean, it just takes so much more energy now just to provide a living. And that's not a result of capitalism. That's a result of sin, right? So you don't blame capitalism on it. You blame sin. These giant animals seem unrealistic because we're only familiar with their smaller counterparts. That giant crab seems unrealistic because we're only familiar with the crabs we get at Red Lobster. Um, If all we had today were house cats, and then we found a fossilized lion, we'd be freaking out, like, no way. I wonder if it was as nice as a house cat, right? Um, That would be a giant cat kind It would be unbelievable. But uh, these examples, the reason I share these is because it puts the giants of the Bible, these nine-foot-tall people, or whatever it is, in, in perspective, doesn't it? There's giants back then. We find them in the fossils. There's giants today. The Bible's not alone in its account of giants either. Tim Chaffee with Answers in Genesis says, nearly every place around the world has legends of giants dwelling in the land. These records are not limited to European mythologies or to, or to the ancient past. African and Asian peoples also have legends of giants, as do Native Americans. So, lots of giant stories out there, just like flood stories, just like the Babel stories. They're all a little different because they get passed along and changed, but they're all still there. Um, back to the giant weapons, though. In 1962, uh, a horde of unnaturally large copper weapons were discovered at Kephar Monash when a farmer was working in his fields. He was expanding his fields. And, and this horde of giant weapons included several spearheads and scale mail coat armor, which many have dated to be thousands of years old, uh, 4,300 years or more. And the items are on display right now at the Israel Museum. You can go look at these things. Now, the smallest spearhead is only 13 inches long. And I cut these things out of cardboard just to give you a perspective of what they're like. This is the small spearhead. This is an average spearhead that they find. Average spearhead, this is the 13-inch one. This thing, in the article, in the journal article they wrote, they said this spearhead is huge. This one right here. But the largest spearhead they found in there, which beat the previous record of a spearhead found at Megiddo, uh, was 26 inches and it weighs five pounds. That's a massive spear. 2 Samuel 21 16, speaking of one giant, says Ishbai Benob was a descendant of the giants. His bronze spearhead weighed more than seven pounds. This one weighed five. This guy, uh, Ishbai's, weighed seven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword. He cornered David and was about to kill him. So it was very similar in size and weight. And then first Samuel 17:7 7 says Goliath's spear was tipped with an iron spearhead weighing 15 pounds, so it was even bigger, or thicker or heavier, I don't know. But can you imagine the beam coming off of that thing? He says it's like a weaver's beam. Was it just this huge pole? I mean, it's just massive. So um, archaeologist Joel Kramer, he's an adjunct. Archaeology professor at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, uh, which I have some interest in, and uh, plan to take some classes there. Uh, I took one in the past. I applied again just to take some classes online. But uh, Joel, he's also the founder of Expedition Bible, by the way. You should follow that on YouTube. But he quotes the original journal article on the Monash Horde, and he says, Spears were used in war and fighting. In the case of the Monash spears, however, their unusual size and weight would appear to be an obstacle rather than an aid to anyone carrying them. Well, yeah, of course, right, if you don't believe in giants. They say, we would like to suggest that these spears would have been used in another way. And so they go on to say that these spears were were probably decorative. Although, and if you look at the picture close up, they admit that the, the largest spears actually show the heaviest signs of actual use like these spears were actually used they weren't just decorative so in addition to the spearheads collected is the the mail coat armor uh, the journal writes a remarkable feature of the monash horde where these small rigid copper plates and there's about 800 of them 800 of these uh, copper plates here and it's funny second samuel seventeen four describes goliath's bronze coat of armor Weighing 125 pounds. There's a lot of armor. There's a big man. It required a lot of these. And so the journal article suggests, well, this was just, you know, armor for multiple men. But if it, that's without a giant perspective, right? one giant probably could have worn these. Uh, Joel, or the article goes on to say the only parallel for the Menash scales was found at Tel Gath. The only parallel to this was found at Telgath, where identical copper scales, also forming a package, were uncovered in the area of the city wall. And Kramer says, isn't it amazing that the only other body armor, like the armor found at Monash, has been found, is at Tel Gath, the hometown of Goliath, who is the giant in the Bible, whose body armor is described for us, and we're given its weight. Isn't that interesting? Identical copper scales. I don't know about you, but I find all of these artifacts to be fun and interesting and just incredibly encouraging to my faith. The archaeological evidence continues to show us that we can trust in the living Word of God. It is reliable. I think that's why I like it so much. I just feel my faith bolstered when I I study these things. And and the story of David and Goliath also teaches us that we not only can trust God's Written word, we can trust the living God of the word. In our own day of battle, when fear is crippling everyone around us, the whole Israelite army was crippled with fear. Their hearts were failing them. Today, we've seen fear overwhelm many people. Ever since COVID arrived, they quit going to church. Sorry to be so blunt. fear of COVID, fear of everything that came with it, the Marxism, the, 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 the I don't know, right now I fear filling up my truck, to be honest with you, but God will provide. Sorry about that. Fear just overwhelms people. It freezes them up, it just isolates them. And it was overwhelming the Israelites when Goliath arrived on scene to battle it out in a one-on-one battle battle called a monomoxia, another historical battle that was common back in the day, a one-on-one, and whoever wins, that's whose army becomes subject to the other. First um, Samuel 17 very descriptively narrates the scene for us instead of saying, well, David killed Goliath and that's it. Couldn't, I mean, we have a whole chapter here of 58 verses. I think uh, the writer of Samuel could have said, uh, David killed Goliath. And I could have used, could have just said three words there, right? David killed Goliath. But instead, the, the, the narrator, the, the writer takes 58 verses to describe this battle for us because through his description of this battle, he's teaching us theological truth, Okay. I say this because a lot of people approach David and Goliath as though they allegorize it, they spiritualize it, and they say, well, this is a battle between, you know, little Jesus and big Satan. And it just gets weird at that point. And the ten slices of cheese or bread become the Ten Commandments and whatever. You know, it just gets weird when you start to allegorize Scripture. That's totally missing the point of the narrative. If you look at the narrative, you'll notice. As uh, Abraham Curavilla has, he's a homiletical teacher, at, or homiletics teacher at Dallas Seminary. He pointed out 1 Samuel 17 describes three characters Goliath, Saul, and David, depending on three different elements stature, resources, and experience. And uh, as you go through this chapter, the, the author in detail repeatedly emphasizes the word man. We're looking for a real man. Who's the real man, Goliath, Saul, or David? Who's the godly man? Who here um, is going to overcome fear? Who's the man who trusts uh, in the Lord for victory? Right? Who In whom or what does a, a real man trust in? That's, that's kind of the question that's going on throughout this whole chapter. Where's the real man? Who's a godly man? And, and so we look at Goliath, and his stature is nine and a half feet tall. He has five personal armaments, a helmet, armor, greaves, saber, spear, and his experience is, is unmatched. He's a champion. It says he's a warrior since his youth. He's been a warrior his whole life. He's older. He's got some experience. He's well equipped to fight and well experienced. Saul, Saul's the second major character. He's He's not considered a giant, but twice in the in chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, we're told that he is head and shoulders above everyone else. Head and shoulders above everyone else. So he's a tall, uh, stocky fellow. For resources, chapter 13 tells us that the weapons of Saul's household were the best in Israel. He had royal gear and royal weapons, him and his son Jonathan, that, that nobody else had. And uh, when when you get to verses 38 and 39, David goes to, goes to try on Saul's gear. You remember that? Saul's like, okay, you're going to go fight this guy. Here's my gear. Here's my sword. David puts it on, and, and it describes the gear for us. And it's, it's very similar to the description of Goliath's gear. He has a bronze helmet. He has armor. He has a sword. And then David uh, he felt weighed down by all of that, and so he just felt restricted, so he took it off. And he says, I, I just don't need that. And then in, in experience, actually, Saul's the one who has delivered Israel in the past. He was filled with the spirit to defeat this, this uh, enemy king named Nahash, who, uh, who threatened to actually gouge out the right eye of every Israelite. So back then, Saul was fighting the Lord's battles, not so today. But if anyone's fit and equipped and experienced to fight Goliath, Saul's the only one who fits that. He's the only person that people would look to and say, hey, go fight this battle for us. You're the biggest one. You have the the weapons. You have the resources. You have the experience. I mean, Saul and Goliath are helmet for helmet, armor for armor, sword for sword, and experience for experience. And that's the way we tend to think. Weapons have to be countered with equal weapons. Fire with fire, chariot with chariot. In man's mind, the only way to win is through equal or greater resources. We trust in our strength, our resources, our experience. We look to human strength, money, ingenuity. Uh, The humanistic superhero, my childhood favorite, Batman. He's the... He's the poster child for this. I don't know why it's not up there. I had a picture of Batman. I guess the Lord didn't want that in there. Um, Batman is the poster child of that humanistic mindset. Batman doesn't have supernatural powers, he defeats the bad guys with muscles and money and all of his man made innovative tools. That's how he wins. That's where he gets the victory. How quickly in the church we let that same mindset creep into our life and our ministry. I'm going to serve the Lord in my own strength, my own power, my own resources. We're going to have an effective church ministry because of all the fancy gadgets we have and because of this and that. There's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with the tools. But what are we trusting in? What are we really trusting in? Are we trusting in the Lord? Or are we trusting in ourselves? David. Let's look at David. He's the last one here. I'm already on that page. David, at a first glance, appears to be totally inadequate. He's an ill-equipped youth. In stature, he's overlooked, literally. He's overlooked. For resources, all David has is a shepherd's staff, a sling and some stones. He doesn't have any armor. In experience... A Goliath is a warrior since his youth. David is actually mocked throughout this chapter as a youth. You're a youth. What good are you? Go home. Go back to your sheep, David. Basically, is what he. His, I mean, from the family and others. Um, sounds like the enemy to me, doesn't it? Sound like that to you? What good are you? What are you gonna do? You're just a youth. You can't do anything for God. That's the enemy talking. How often that comes through our family, to be honest with you? You step out to serve the Lord, who's the first one to tear you down in your efforts? Usually, someone in your family. Prophet's not welcome in his hometown. But is that all there is to David in his stature and resources and experience? Only what meets the eye, only what's external? No. As you look back at the previous chapter, when prophet Samuel is told to go anoint another king from the sons of Jesse, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, says basically, "Where's where's your sons? I'm told to anoint a king, and I don't know which one. And so the seven sons of Jesse walk in, and Samuel thinks, he doesn't even say it, he just says, he looks at Eliab, and there's something about him, his stature, whatever, his height, Maybe he was handsome, I don't know. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely it's Eliab. And the Lord actually responds to Samuel's thought (laughs) with, don't look at his appearance. Don't look at his height. Don't look at his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, David had a stature that you couldn't see. He had a heart stature of faith. Everybody else's heart looked like a a flower in yesterday's summer heat, right? That hadn't been watered in a week. Just lame and wimpy hearts. Their hearts were failing them. David had a heart of faith. His heart was tall and it was strong in faith. He had a heart of iron. In a good way. His resource was the unlimited God who in past experience had shown himself to be a living God in David's life. Not just the God of his fathers, not just the God who worked in the past, but the God of the now. The God of the now, the Psalm 46 God who is a fortress and a shield and a strength now. The God who who not just worked in the past, the God who works now, who is a very present help in time of need. Do you guys have that kind of living God who helps you now? But we've got to trust in Him. Verse 45 says, David said to the Philistine, you Come to me with a sword and spear and saber, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky. And the wild beasts of the earth, that all may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And so David prevailed over the giant with a sling and a stone. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but what do we trust in? The name of the Lord our God, the living God. Nothing pleases God more than trust. You guys know that, right? What does God require for salvation? Trust in what Jesus has done for us. How do we live this Christian life? How do we do ministry? Same thing. Trust in Jesus Christ by grace through trusting in Him and His power at work through us. Trust to trust, faith to faith. Apart from him, we, we can do nothing. Zechariah 4.6 says, It's not by man's might, it's not by man's power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And they were just building the temple again when God said that. You're not going to build this temple without the power of my grace. That's what God was saying. J. Vernon McGee's translation, It's not by brawn right, muscles, it's not by brain, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know what battle you find yourself in, but I would, I would, examine, I would examine your heart, and I'll examine my heart. What am I trusting in to give me victory in this battle, to carry me through this battle? Because we've all got battles today, and my, our challenge is to trust the living God in our present battles and to, to battle in such a way that all the rest would know that there's a living God who makes a difference in that battle. Let's go ahead and uh, take communion now. It's been a while since we, we've done this. And communion is a time where we look back, we look back to God's faithfulness. In the past, on the cross, that sacrifice, we look forward to his coming, and, and, but we also examine our, our hearts now. You trust he, he was faithful in the past, you trust that he's going to come on that, that horse, and, and the words that are going to be written on him are the one who is faithful and true, faithful then, faithful then about now? Because that's where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? I'm going through this. I'm going through that. Am I still trusting that the Lord is good? Am I still trusting that the Lord is faithful?